Yes. Here ends our reading. And now time for our New Testament reading. Our New Testament reading comes from the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, the very first verses, chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. An account of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Aram, and Aram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, it gets better, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Salathiel, and Salathiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiod, and Abiod the father of Eliakim, uh, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliod, and Eliod the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. <laughs> So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Please pray with me. Holy God, we pray that your spirit may be with us in this place. That in these words... We may hear your word. Amen. Now this Advent season, I made the choice not to preach on the typical Advent passages that we find in the lectionary. Instead, I decided to do something a bit different, and that is go right to the heart of the Christmas story and dissect, take apart, unwrap, the Christmas stories we find in both Matthew and Luke. Time to do a deep dive into these texts. A little wading through the Bible. And of course, the first text in the Gospel of Matthew is one that doesn't show up in the lectionary anywhere. And if I were were willing to guess, I would bet none of you have heard a sermon preached on this text. (laughs) These great opening lines from the Gospel of Matthew, so riveting. So exciting. It does make you ask the question, though, why on earth would Matthew begin this way? Talk about a great way to put people to sleep, right? When I was a kid, we would occasionally hear stories about 
our ancestors. Maybe it was the same in your family. My parents wanted to make sure that we knew where we came from, and so the middle names of myself and my two siblings all represent the family names of my great-grandparents. So my older brother, his middle name is Howland, my middle name is Conant, and my younger sister's middle name is Parker. The Howlands, or so we were told, the Howlands came over on the Mayflower. John Howland was one of the original passengers on the Mayflower. And so the Howlands and apparently other Howland siblings who came over grew up in Plymouth. And so we were reminded as kids that we had ancestors who came over on the Mayflower. See, it makes me a good congregationalist, right? I've got all the congregationalist street cred out there. And then the Conants, Roger Conant was the first Conant to come to America, and he came over in 1624. He arrived initially in the Plymouth Colony and then was one of the founders of the town of Salem. And you can actually go there, and you can see this massive and imposing statue of Roger Conant dressed as a proper Puritan. And if you go into the chamber of the Massachusetts House of Representatives... And you look above the sort of front of the chamber, there are different murals. And the first mural on the left is a mural of when John Winthrop came over uh, with, those, with the Massachusetts Bay Colony settlers. The first place they went to was Salem, Mass. And it's a mural of Winthrop taking over command of the colony from Roger Conant. And then the Parkers... The Parkers were a series of five, or a group of five brothers who came over in the 1640s and settled in the area around Chelmsford, Massachusetts. And my great-grandparents, who died in the 1970s, still farmed that same land that had been in the family since the 1640s. And in fact, the farmhouse they lived in had been built in the 1680s and was the oldest house anywhere in the area. And my father, and I think it's still around somewhere, had a deed to that land because he was the eldest son of the eldest son of the eldest son of the eldest son going all the way back to the 1640s. These are all stories we were told about our ancestors. Now again, we weren't told every ancestor, we weren't told about every generation, but my parents wanted us to know where we came from so we could be proud of that, hopefully live into that in whatever form that might, whatever form that might take. How about you? What were the stories of your ancestors that you were told? The stories that were meant to inspire, to remind you who you were, where you came from. Old school biographies tended to spend a lot more time on genealogy and family histories than biographies do today. And one of the things they like to focus on are the characteristics of the ancestors that appear in the character of the biography. So Robert Caro's famous biographies of LBJ, his first volume is Path to Power, and in the first page of chapter one of Path to Power, it talks about uh, Lyndon Johnson when he's born. And when he's born, he's in the crib, his great aunt, apparently according to Caro, leans over and looks into the crib, takes one look at little baby uh, baby Lyndon Johnson, and she says, oh, he's got the button strain in him. That is, the strain of the family that goes to the mother's side, Lyndon Johnson's mother's side, the Buntons. Apparently, the Buntons tended to be uh, tall. They had their, they had, they'd been in Texas for quite some time. Tall, big ears, lanky, and most of all, fiery, very opinionated, and above all, ambitious. 
And yes, indeed, Lyndon Johnson had that button strain in him. In Massachusetts, where I'm from, the great political family of the 20th century, of course, is the Kennedys. And you still hear talk today among the later generation of Kennedys, who's got that Kennedy strain? Who's got that political gift? Who's going to be the next person in that generation to step up? In my own family, there's a question of, oh, is that person a Conant or a Page of the three kids? My older brother, very much a Conant in his personality. My sister and I are very much Pages. I'm sure you find something similar in your family. There's certain strains that come through. Well, 2,000 years ago, about 50 years after the death of Jesus, in the city of Antioch in modern-day Syria, there a group of Christians gathered in a house church on Sunday morning. And that particular Sunday... There was a guest who wandered in, a man named Lot, a man of Jewish descent, but someone who, someone who walked away from his Judaism and considered himself more of a spiritual person. But he's still curious. What were these really Christians all about? So he wandered in to that church that day and sat down on one of the benches. And it just so happened on that Sunday was the Sunday when a member of that church, a guy by the name of Matthew, was finally going to read out his story of Jesus. So as he's sitting down, the scroll is unrolled, and Matthew begins to read. This is the genealogy, the story, the account of Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. All of a sudden, Lot leans forward in his seat. Did he just say son of David? And as the generations are read out one after another, this man, because, he's, because he was raised as a good Jew, he recognized a lot of the names that were being read out. And then, of course, the name of King David. He thinks to himself, is Jesus really a descendant of King David? And then the names of the kings that he knew, that he'd heard about as a boy, keep getting read out one after another after another. Does this man really have royal blood in him? And he gets to the end and he hears Matthew read out that there were 14 generations. Now, back in those days, numerology was a big thing. People loved talking about numbers. Numbers had a big deal. And 14 happened to be the number of David. Because the first letter of David's name was the fourth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The second letter of David's name was the sixth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The third letter and final letter of David's name was the fourth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. 14. And you could see this man Lot leaning forward and listening and thinking to himself, I wonder if this man Jesus has that David strain in him. What's it going to look like? All of a sudden, he can't wait to hear what the rest of the story is. My boss at Harvard, Peter Gomes, was a professor at Harvard for some 40 years. And, of course, he had a lot of friends who were other professors that were there. One of his closest friends was a professor, Henry Louis Gates, Jr. Now, Skip Gates uh, gained some notoriety a number of years ago when he was arrested uh, in Cambridge by the Cambridge police. Uh, This then created a big uh, national hubbub, and Skip Gates eventually grabbed a beer with this police officer at the White House with President Obama. I don't know if you remember that story. That's the very same Skip Gates. 
Well, Gates uh, was the head of the African American Studies Department at Harvard, <clears throat> and one of his projects over the last 10 plus years, 10, 15 years, has been trying to lift up the ancestry of African Americans and actually doing a TV show where he would interview certain people to find out about their ancestry. Where did you come from? So often the ancestry of black Americans has been lost or wiped away, and Skip Gates wanted to lift that up. And so one of the people he interviewed on his show was my former boss, Peter Gomes. And Gomes was delighted to discover that in his ancestry were Sephardic Jews from Spain, and that he was a descendant of the Cohens. He was himself a descendant of the great priests of Israel. And Peter got such delight out of this, he would repeat the story constantly because it warmed his heart so much. It's interesting to see what different things are hiding in our ancestry. I bet a number of you have taken uh, those DNA tests, either for 23andMe or for Ancestry.com. When I was in Iowa, my roommate, Matthew, uh, did the 23andMe test a number of years ago, and he discovered that he had trace elements of South Asian blood in him. That is to say, Indian-Pakistani blood in him. And again, it's a very small amount, and he guessed that maybe one of his ancestors had been involved in the British East India Company and perhaps had spent time in India or Pakistan and married a woman from India or Pakistan and then moved back to the British Isles. This warmed Matthew's heart because some of his closest friends in the entire world were Pakistani, and he had spent time in Pakistan. So to learn that he actually had South Asian blood in him was something that really excited him, and he couldn't wait to share this news with his friends. Now, in Boston, historically, the great divide in Boston were between the Irish Catholics and the English Protestants. Thankfully, not so much today, but you go back a few generations, and this was a major divide in the city of Boston. Boston politics, Boston culture could be broken down into the Irish Catholic part of Boston and the English Protestant part of Boston and Massachusetts. These groups did not mix. They had lots of suspicions and animosity against one another. And of course, growing up, I always assumed that all my ancestors came from the English side. Until a couple of years ago, that my mother told me that, no, actually, one of my great-grandparents, uh, Julia, was Irish. This blew me away. They'd never told me, they never told me about this. All of a sudden, I could look across and, and see this, this whole other part of Boston and say, ha, that, that's my tradition, too. I could claim descent from both that Irish Catholic tradition and that English Protestant tradition. Well, in that church in Antioch, there was one man, Jonah, who still held on to those divisions between Jew and Gentile. This was the key division that separated the early Christian church. Did you have to be an observant Jew in order to be a Christian? and believe Jesus as the Messiah? Or could you be a Gentile? Even though by the mid-80s AD, most Christians had resolved this issue, you knew there were still simmering tensions that were there. Not everyone was going to get on board. After all, there are always simmering tensions in every congregation that go back a number of years, right? Occasionally. And so this man Jonah was sitting in the congregation, still holding on to these thoughts, but very much looking forward to what Matthew was going to say, because Matthew, of course, was one of the good Jews in the congregation. And Matthew starts reading out his list, his list of Jesus' ancestors. 
And one of the first names he mentions is Tamar, a Canaanite. And then he keeps reading and comes across Rahab. You know Rahab from the story of Joshua and Jericho? Another Canaanite. And then he keeps reading and mentions the name of Ruth, a Moabite woman. And keeps reading and goes out of his way to mention uh, not Bathsheba, but calling Bathsheba the wife of Uriah. Uriah, of course, being a Hittite. And it slowly dawns on this Jonah sitting there in the pews that Jesus, his great savior, his great Jewish savior, also had Canaanite blood. He had the same descent through Gentile blood that still ran in his veins as it ran in all their veins, that perhaps those divisions that he held on to, maybe they didn't matter quite so much. Maybe that's part of the story that was to come. Now, most of us in our family have those ancestors we don't talk about. Those black sheep of the family. Those people you only find out about a little bit later on, or the full stories of them only come out later on. You only hear the good parts, and then all of a sudden you hear some rumors from your grandmother. Oh, well, maybe that's a little different than I thought it was. Every family's got that. Well, for me and my family... That's when I found out about one of my great-grandparents, the great-grandfather Howland. The great-grandfather Howland was from Woodstock, Vermont, and he married my great-grandmother. Apparently, he was a traveling salesman, and he used that as an excuse to be quite the flanderer. So much so that my great-grandmother took the bold step of divorcing him in the 1920s. First of all, not an easy thing to do. You had to have pretty clear evidence of what was going on to qualify for divorce in the 1920s. And then she went off and raised two young daughters entirely on her own as a single mother in the 1920s and then during the Depression in the 1930s. Now, when my mother was growing up, she was always told, of course, that her grandfather had died. It was only later on that she discovered, no, he had not died. He was actually, he lived well into the 1960s, and my mother never met him. And when she brought it up with her mother, her mother's response was, well, when they got divorced and he left, he was dead to the family. Now, in that little Christian community was a woman who came every Sunday a woman who tended to sit by herself because she didn't know what the others would think of her. She's someone who had a difficult past. Her parents had died when she was young and she had to make her own way on the streets of Antioch and for her, that meant engaging in prostitution. It was a part of her story she never told to anyone because she wasn't sure what anyone else in the church would say. After all, people in the church were upright people, good people. Why would they accept her? She didn't belong. And so there that morning, she sat there and she listened as, again, Matthew began his gospel, opened it up with this list of names. But this woman, when she was listening, heard something different than the other people heard. Because when she heard the name Tamar, she remembered the story of Judah and Tamar. She remembered that Tamar's husband had died, and in order to get Judah to do what he was supposed to do, Tamar had to dress up like a prostitute in order to lure Judah in. 
And when she heard the name of Rahab, what did she hear? She remembered the fact that Rahab, before she helped out the Israelites, was a prostitute in Jericho. And yet was the great hero that helped the people of Israel. And when she heard the name of Ruth, she knew that both Ruth's husband and Naomi's husband had died. And these two women went to Bethlehem to try and make their own way. And part of making their own way was Ruth trying to seduce Boaz so that she could take care of both herself and Naomi. And so as this woman in the pews on that morning was listening, she realized that in David's family tree, in David's family tree were people that had different pasts as well. It was all part of the same story that was to come. Fourteen generations and then 14 generations, and then 14 generations. And as Matthew finished that opening line, everyone knew that something new was about to start. A new era was about to start, something that had a little bit in the story for each one there. And they leaned forward because they couldn't wait to hear what was coming next in the weeks to come as the story of Jesus unfolded.